You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Welcome, Manufactured listeners. This week, we're chatting to Ellen Seville and Kelly Fennessy from Green Design Link and the Endery. Green Design Link is based in Peru, and historically, they've produced for other brands. However, they recently decided to start their own in-house brand called the Endery. Green Design Link supports a community of over 1,000 knitters. Knitters aren't directly employed by Green Design Link. Instead, Green Design Link works with a network of small business leaders who directly manage the relationship with knitters. In this week's episode, we chat about why Green Design Link decided to create its own in-house brand. To our surprise, the reason for this transition was dead stock and pre-consumer waste. We explored the barriers manufacturers face in selling directly to end consumers and what positioned Green Design Link to make this leap. Kelly and Ellen share quite a bit of detail about how the relationship between Green Design Link and its knitters is structured, how the risk and reward is distributed, and the kind of relationship they've managed to establish. Inevitably, this takes us into social compliance. We look at the tension between mainstream models for social compliance and how these do or don't fit within Green Design Link's production model. And what are the implications for thinking about how we might integrate the artisanal production into more conventional fashion supply chains? If you're on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to receive our news and updates. And finally, please don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Welcome, Kelly and Ellen. I want to start by having each of you just paint a picture of who you are, where you're from. So first off, thank you so much for having us here. We're so pleased. Um, we love talking about manufacturing with like-minded people. And I feel like it's something that's so in the background still. So it's really lovely to be able to kind of share our experience of what kind of goes on behind the making of clothing. In terms of where I come from and how I started, I actually grew up between Oklahoma, England, and Texas. Then I went to college in New York and just felt like I really still had so much learning to do. And I really wanted to be, um, after, you know, traveling around in, in Europe, um, you know, with my family, mostly on tours, I really wanted to be more on the ground in the culture in countries and really understand the societies on a deeper level. So I decided to, you know, go to Latin America and, and just kind of, uh, <laughs> backpacked ar around here and, um, and, and came to Peru and, and stayed on for a while, um, And, you know, a few months just led to a few more months and a few more months and eventually started building a life here. And, you know, manufacturing um, just kind of fell into it, to be honest, like after doing um, a lot with social justice and human rights, really having a passion for that, I uh, got to a point where researching became really difficult and in, in not being able to, to do action. So eventually I stumbled into, you know, hand knitting and, you know, artisan work and, you know, business. And it just became such a really beautiful way to be able to combine different interests and really make an impact. Mm, I think it's something 
I know one of the things that led me into this space is is sort of similar to you, which is like, well, it's out, maybe it's similar, but I, f- I felt like I had a I had a background in human rights work as well. And I felt like in my day job, which was a more strictly human rights type of job, uh, I was doing interesting and important work. But then in terms of my day-to-day participation in the consumer economy, I was undermining a lot of the work that I was aspiring to kind of fix. And, um, and yeah, I, I think that a lot of times we kind of separate human rights work or social justice work from the global economy. And, and in fact, it's, it's impossible. They're so intertwined and intersected. That, and, you know, I feel like giving people work is really one of the most empowering things you can do. Mm. Being able to create a job for somebody, especially in the area that we're in with homeworkers um, oftentimes women who don't have as much access to education and work opportunity, it's really mm. incredible to be able to give them an opportunity to thrive. And it's not always easy. Um, what we do, I mean, manufacturing in itself, as you know, is like not easy at all, but, um, <laughs> being able to, to build them up as small business owners. And, you know, a lot of, um, the people that we work with even, you know, didn't feel like they could have a bank account, things like that. But mm. we've been able to formalize a really informal sector. And I think there's a lot of power to have that economic income and, you know, leave a relationship if they want to leave and not have to be dependent on, you know, the man of the house. Yeah, it just reminds me a not pleasant, but definitely a convincing case. You know, China started the economy reform in 1990s. And actually, in 1990, I think China is one of the countries with the highest suicide rate in the world. Before the economic reform, for a while, that suicide rate of Chinese women is very high in China. It's much higher, actually, than men. And that is very abnormal. Worldwide, is usually the men's suicide rate higher than the women's. But in China, it's the opposite. However, since 1990s, China started economic reform. Women started to have more and more opportunities to find jobs in factories or companies in smaller towns, bigger towns or cities or even capital cities. That really guaranteed them a finance independence and opportunities to live a free life away from their maybe violent husbands or very depressed daily life. Oh, Jesse, that's so interesting. I didn't know that about the suicide rates for Chinese women prior to economic reforms versus afterwards. For listeners who are interested in learning more, we'll provide some links in the show notes. Um, and what about what about you, Ellen? Uh, yes. So similar to Kelly, I've also um, traveled a lot. So I kind of grew up in the UK, but after university, I've traveled and worked extensively. I, w- I lived in Japan for a few years and I taught English. <laughs> um, and that was often just kind of a way for me to just get out and see the world. I've always been really passionate about travel and about um, understanding different cultures. And I've always been a big maker. So um, I've always sewn, I've always upcycled, I've always been really into secondhand clothing and um, just through all the travel, really, I've been able to access and, and work with artisan groups um, learning more about textile traditions, which I did in Japan. Um, I actually spent a bit of time in Cambodia as well, which was where I had my kind of aha moment with um, seeing factories, the overspill of factories and, and kind of the mass produced clothing there. 
that was when I really started to understand um, kind of overseas production and thinking of the impact that that must have on those people. So, yes. And so I found myself um, actually did a fellowship for um, a brand in Central America. That was my first experience of working with Latin American textiles. And I just fell in love with it. And um, I knew that Peru had an awful lot to offer um, in terms of fibers, in terms of textile traditions. I'd heard that it's just an incredibly old country historically. Um, so it's a really amazing country to kind of get your teeth into. And if, you know, if you've spent time in like Japan or any of these really, really old cultures, then there's just so much to learn. And, and Peru didn't really disappoint. It was just amazing from the word go. And I was able to kind of work with different groups and really try to understand the textile traditions and the culture that came along with that. Because obviously in Peru, there's just such different landscapes. You've got the high mountains, the coast, and a lot of these different communities produce different textiles depending on where they are and what fibers they have to hand. So really fell in love with the weaving and then came to knitting a little bit later, just kind of found myself in in knitting really, the, sa- the same as Kelly. <laughs> um, and it's a bit of a creative paradise, Peru, just because the artisans have such a high level of skill and they can pretty much make anything so um and that like twinned with the kind of romance that comes with you know the backstrap weaving and the knitting and the history and and the yarn culture um i i lived there for about five years um which is where obviously i met kelly and i i started working with gdl and then you know last year we launched the endery and how did green design link which is actually a manufacturer um end up switching over into an entity that is selling directly to end consumers the Endery is the in-house brand of Green Design Link. And this brand was specifically developed to tackle the waste issue in terms of the dead stock that we see piling up at the end of the production process. And this is not only just within our own remit. This is also, you know, countrywide. I have a very close relationship with the Alpaca Mills in Peru. We both do. And so we're obviously able to access other larger kind of sources of dead stock as well so we wanted the brand to use only dead stock materials in high-end fibers because there's so many of them in peru and the idea is that we develop small collections based around fibers that we find and that we love and that speak to us so it's a very kind of waste-led design process which was very challenging (laughs) so a lot of the time i would look at the reds and i would think i really don't like that red or i really don't like that green and how is that supposed to how's that supposed how's that going to look good together how do we break that up and that's why we ended up using a lot of stripes and a lot of intarsia designs just because this allowed us to have fun and we thought if we're just going to go for it we might as well just go for it because we can't do really subtle nuisance you know knitwear and a lot of people Mm. are doing a fantastic job of that but often it's not the neutral colors that are left over anyway it's often you know the ends of you know colors that were last season's colors (laughs) right you know, we have to combine them in an interesting way for them to look good. And we're still testing the water and and trying to get used to that. Um, But it's been really, really fun. But it's also just been a very different way to approach design. Mm. When you're not kind of behind the curtain and seeing it happen in action, it's really hard to envision how it does. But just any sort of like mistake, something that came out wrong, a miscalculation, there's just a lot of reasons why uh, certain materials can start to build up. And as we started to see it build up, um, you know, with our own work, we started to realize that like, this is really, this is an issue. This is an issue, not only with us, this is an issue with everybody. And we started thinking, you know, why not be creative about this? Because, you know, I think a lot of people just take it as a problem, but, um, 
And it is kind of a problem because then it's also like the inventory and accounting and reporting it and storing Mm -hmm. it and um, really trying to think both of us, you know, being from kind of like the target markets, so to speak, Mm -hmm. American, British, um, I think we really got uh, the market and as consumers ourselves, like we grew up in these countries, mm-hmm. we we buy from, you know, brands that we idolize. Um, we thought that this could be pitched in a really interesting way and that um, it could be really converted um, into something really beautiful. So just talking about the brand and, you know, the, the leftovers that we've been tackling as part of the brand, I think it's also important to mention about how we envision the brand as being um, a sourcing platform um, mm. ideally that's the direction we would love to go in whereby um, you know there are a lot of other brands out there that are looking to use leftovers and dead stock materials and that you know twinned with the kind of um, suppliers that we work with through GDL um, we could be able to build out some really lovely collaborations and you know kind of scale up what we're doing with the dead stock issue in Peru um, that that's the kind of the idea with setting up the Endery um, and we're really keen to kind of you know join forces with other brands that are also committed to tackling waste and using materials in an innovative and different way um, we're still very new in that mission and still learning a lot. And we have, you know, it's also worth mentioning the amazing team that we have behind us. And Kelly and I, obviously the the people that face our audience and our customers, but there are some incredible people that help us um, source the dead stock, categorize it, um, find a home for it, um, understand what we have so that we can start to build collections out of that. And that's often the most difficult part, you know, is just kind of understanding what there is out there and how we can offer that to different clients. And it's still a work in progress, but I think it's worth mentioning that um, we see there's a huge demand for people that want to use these types of materials and the Endery is a part of that. So I think it's important to explain here for listeners what exactly we mean by waste, because it's maybe not the the kind of trash you imagine. Yeah, uh, actually, just to remember, I once saw a, a big roll of fabric. It looks really nice. However, it's kind of waste. Why? Because by mistake, there is an extra line printed in the middle of the pattern. But this is a mistake of printing pattern. If we talk about quality, it's perfect. And it has nothing to um, to prevent and the consumers to enjoy it. So it's really a pity. Yeah, sometimes rolls will even have, like when we would do incoming goods inspection, we would inspect the incoming rolls of fabric arriving uh, you know, at our factory from China. And maybe they'd have a, a very small, small imperfection and we would disqualify it for use or stuff like the, the, you know, the shades of the color were not exactly the same. So within, you know, one run, it would have been quite noticeable and we couldn't have used, uh, you know, a shade of green black with a rich black, but for other production, it would have been totally fine. So when we talk about waste, it's it can be whole rolls of fabric, which are perfectly suitable for use. Um, it can also be off cuts. So after cutting, we have uh, these scraps of, of fabric that are left between the pattern panels. And in fact, it's actually quite valuable because pre-consumer waste at the factory level has a composition passport. We know exactly what it is. It doesn't have any trims or accessories attached to it. 
So I expected Green Design Link to say that the reason they created the Endery was because they wanted a bigger piece of the pie. And by that, I don't mean greed or anything like that. But I just mean if if manufacturers sell directly to end consumers, then they take home more of the revenue. It's interesting to hear that it, that actually their reason the reason didn't really have anything to do with that. It had everything to do with waste. And... Um, I think it's really interesting how you can turn this idea of waste and something that um, Green Design Link has really easily accessible to it into a resource that is something of value. And I think it kind of begs the question, how as manufacturers could we reimagine things and resources that are right in front of us that are maybe often overlooked or typically perceived as worthless? About six months ago, I was talking to an organization called Reverse Resources, which is an organization that's trying to create an online platform for selling and trading of, of scrap. So, uh, well, pre-consumer waste, uh, they're trying to connect the people who have these resources to the people who want them. And um, it was interesting because I was chatting to someone who works for or who was involved in reverse resources. And um, she said that they had a really hard time sometimes getting suppliers to get on board with the idea because um, suppliers feared that if they were to sell their, their waste and their scraps and their remnant fabric and their dead stock on a platform like this, that then brands would know exactly how what their scrap rates are and and what their what their would have more detailed information about their costs and that then as a result um uh that this would be used against them to squeeze their margins even further so that then the, their customers the brands would come back to them during negotiations and say hey we saw you were selling like x number of kilos of our fabric uh, on this platform. So we want you to, we think you can do better than that. And we want you to reduce your, reduce your price. Or even like we saw you're selling these scraps and that's a new revenue stream for you. So therefore like you need to pass that on to us. <laughs> yeah. It's complicated. I think suppliers have a role to play in this in terms of, I think, seeing the opportunity instead of only seeing the 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 risk and 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 the fear but at the same time i think brands do too which actually i think um takes me to another point one of the reasons green design link is able to make this switch and that kelly and ellen that you saw the value of this waste is because you also as someone who is british or american understand the market and how the market is evolving which makes me think about emerging markets and in these countries that maybe weren't um, historically seen as fashion-consuming countries um, but now have emerging middle classes and are quickly becoming consuming countries, fashion-consuming countries. Will manufacturers have an easier time selling to end consumers and making this switch? Oh, I, I think definitely yes. And your words just uh, remind me of an example I had when I worked for this uh, French group. So I was in Shanghai and our suppliers are mostly in Zhejiang province and uh, which is a very rich area around Shanghai. But I believe in other provinces, the situation would be the same. So anyway, at that moment, um, 
French buyers often send us some designs, ask us to source the suppliers to make it. And uh, we will discuss about designs. For us, it's a bit shocking. As all these women top usually show lots of skins of the chest. You know, in China culture, this is not, uh, this is quite bold. So we were talking about those uh, styles and we were saying, oh, those kind of styles would never be able to, uh, to be a good style in China. So that's very funny. <laughs> yeah, that makes me think actually for Chinese uh, garment manufacturers, they were in China. They know quite well what Chinese girls or what Chinese men or women, what they would like to wear. They knew it because it's in the culture. And uh, they also know very well about the market. For instance, if they needed to set up a shop, they know which road or which corner or which section which crossroad is the best place to to set up a shop? So these are the two advantages they have comparing compared to the overseas buyers. And another advantage they have is they um, they have the advantage of a more optimized way of production, which they get trained or get uh, installed by working with overseas brands. So with all these advantages, I think yeah, you just mentioned a very good point that. Uh, in emerging markets, those uh, manufacturers actually has an easier way, easier time to sell to end consumers. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I I totally agree with so many of the examples you just um, described. I guess one of like the questions I have in my head, which is maybe even one level bigger, is is how do trends get set? And what drives what consumers want? Like if you look at it historically, that was the role of the designer, right? The role of the designer was to tell consumers what they wanted and what they should buy. Yeah. And and now you also, I think at the same time, you have these emerging markets, but then sort of in parallel, you have this like a flipping flipping of the narrative about the role of the designer. And then instead of consumer trends being driven top down that like with the rise of fast fast fashion and ability to get products to market a lot quicker that now actually what we see happening is consumers sort of setting the trends from the bottom up and i don't know i i think it's an interesting yeah it's an interesting path it's an interesting approach for the mm. uh, manufacturers to you know, rebalance the whole power thing and to approach to the end consumers because they do have some advantages. But then imagine if all the consumers in emerging markets start consuming as many clothes as, say, Americans. I mean, from a sustainability perspective, that would be terrible. But (laughs) (laughs) We're not encouraging everyone to consume as many clothes as, as Americans or as other, you know, countries. Yeah, definitely not. But no, but it is... But it's interesting, right? Because it's it's like, okay, we definitely don't want to support uh, the overconsumption model. On the other hand, like if we're talking about, mm, say, workers' rights and giving manufacturers a bigger slice of the pie so that they can also pay their workers more, this actually, from that angle, 
might be a good thing. So it's, I think that's maybe the point to take away too, is how sustainability can have so many different meanings and can, can have, you can justify a lot of different courses of action based on the angle that you look at it from. And that a lot of times uh, the different sort of angles for thinking about sustainability can be in tension and in conflict with one another. And that's why I think conversation across the supply chain between brands, between manufacturers, between, you know, all these different layers is so important for being able to think about these issues holistically and to find a path forward that really uh, sort of hits the most, the most angles that we possibly can. So I want to backtrack a minute. Can you just give us some context for what's what's Green Design Link and uh, what is its relationship to the Endery? Sure. Green Design Link is um, basically a manufacturer, like a factory, but instead of doing t-shirts or jeans, we're basically doing mostly hand-knit garments on a large scale through a wide network of super skilled knitters here in Peru. So we basically produce really specialized quality knitwear for clothing brands. Really, I think we speak to and who we are is a brand that really seeks to empower artisans um, and really lift up craft as a beautiful thing and as something that has a lot of added value. And Mm. this is the kind of brand that we tend to attract It sounds like a green design link is producing something highly specialized that not Mm. much producers can do in the market. Because of the product is highly specialized, either in terms of technique, either in terms of, um, um, you see, handmade and machine made are totally two different concepts. If it's handmade, your tolerance naturally is much higher than machine made because, you know, it cannot use the same uh, quality standard or the same tolerance standard. I would call it like uh, the characters of the products. So because of mm. the characters or the natures of the products, the brands um, are very different, I guess. I imagine this group of brands have much higher tolerance uh, in terms of um, technical specifications, in terms of uh, prices, in terms of uh, delivery date, and gives much more um, spaces to the manufacturers for communication and for trust. Um, so this is very interesting. Since it's all related to what we produce today, what we what a manufacturer produce can actually increase their spaces in terms of negotiation and in terms of uh, trust, in terms of uh, sort of partnership. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of the themes that's been coming up a lot in some of our conversations is is. And something that I had never really considered before before undertaking this project is just how the actually the nature of the product and what kind of product you're producing affects sort of let's say the the balance of power at the negotiating table and more technical products like and products that are harder to make which maybe fewer people are willing to take on actually kind of has the potential to balance the scales a little bit at the negotiating table and to make um, the relationship, I think, between the brand and the manufacturer uh, 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 quite quite different than in, say, cases where what you're making is a standard t-shirt, which anybody can make. A handmade product, it means you have to 
I mean, really like have to ha- set up or build a strong relationship with the people, with the doers, with people who actually do it because it's handmade. You truly rely on them. It's not like traditional manufacturing. It's uh, machines and people. So somehow I feel in traditional way of manufacturing, machines are the major players here. You can always train the operators to get used to to, to master the machines. So I have a feeling that uh, somehow traditional manufacturing um, gives more, how you call that, gives more attention or more importance to machines instead of operators. That doesn't mean they don't respect operators, they do. But somehow machines also play a very important role, especially for some other complicated woven products, for instance, like uh, jeans. I'm curious to know what kind of uh, uh, connections or how they grow the trust between them and the knitters. That's also quite interesting, yeah. I think, you know, building trust volume, I mean, what, what I told you guys before in terms of the way that we've been able to consistently bring them more and more orders. So we started really as, as kind of like a winter focused brand, of course, knitwear, hand knits often is very, you know, winter accessory oriented, um, knit scarves, knit sweaters. And then when we were able to get more into, you know, spring and summer and make it year round, then, you know, that was huge for everybody because the work was a lot more stable. It wasn't just seasonal. The way that they've seen us grow. And I think also, you know, the way that we've been able to work with them and really like listen to them and try to be great partners. I'm sure there's a lot that we have to improve on, but we do try to be the, you know, the best partners we can um, with these people and really respect uh, their say and the ways that they want to grow. I want to ask if it's all right with you just a little bit of details on this because I think like trust often I've talked to a lot of people who work within brands even who are like yeah trust we want trust we want more open communication with our suppliers but how do we actually get that and it feels like such an abstract and nebulous concept I mean you've described sort of what this relationship between green design link and knitters uh sort of the feeling that it has and the way that information flows more easily both ways but i want to ask you to share some of the details about how that relationship is actually structured because what i understand is that you have green design link and then you work with a number of production leaders who then work with various knitting communities is that accurate or not yes and so the um, the knitters are are sort of like is cooperative kind of the right word that it's a, a network of cooperatives who are sort of feeding products in. The role of Green Design Link is basically sort of fielding out these orders and then making sure that there's technical ability and uh, to produce the products and then doing quality control before they get pushed back out to the customer. Or how does how does that work? Yeah. I mean, that's basically it. So it's not, I wouldn't call it exactly a cooperative, at least here in Peru, that has kind of um, a legal structure. Uh, It's a different legal structure, usually to what Mm. we're working with. So oftentimes Mm there will be a knitting leader who will be the one who is essentially the business owner and the smallest business form, basically, let's say, I, I guess it would be something similar to maybe like a little mini LLC in their name. You know, we're working with that little LLC and they're responsible for manning their group. 
And what we do as Green Design Link is we, you know, obviously manage all communications with the client. We do like the prototyping, the prototyping, the developments. And what we also do is like all the calculations to buy the materials and we purchase the materials. So when we receive the materials, Mm. we do all the quality control of those and we create like little packs to be able Mm -hmm. to give out to all the knitters. And they are, you know, responsible, obviously, for taking care of those. And then they also give them, they, you know, work work with them um, in their groups and then give us finished product back. And so, you know, we do, we have um, like little, little service orders and we, you know, we do like put on paper, you know, the specifications, we give them all this information, what the order is, how much they're being paid. And, you know, they're very clear, you know, we also have a manual that we mm. uh, renew yearly that really clearly outlines the way that we work and if there's going to be, you know, any sort of deductions on on pay or anything like it's all outlined there. So, you know, if right. if someone loses materials or, you know, doesn't supply them, it's something it, it's a cost that the company has um and it's really important for us to tell the leaders because the leaders also need to be able to communicate that with the people that they work with. And this helps everybody really keep things tight in the supply mm. chain. And usually the way that we work is the first time, um, you know, is kind of like a warning, like, hey, like, really don't don't let this happen again. Um, you know, we have this discount. You're aware of it. We did talk about it. We really need, you know, your help in this. Um, and it doesn't happen a lot. That's not the idea of things. But at the same time, if we're going to run this on a large scale and be able to protect the work that we give mm. to everybody, we mm. also have to uh, lay out ways to protect the way that we work. Yeah. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, it's only fair for us to communicate that to the leaders so that they're also manning it in the way that they best see fit in their group. So that's mm. kind of the way that we're able to run a relatively tight ship. But it's interesting because, in correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there's quite a lot of, so the, the group production leaders are effectively independent entities, but there's quite a lot of shared risk between Green Design Link and those group leaders because you are the one financing the purchase of the raw materials, right? So there's there's sort of like built into this relationship. And, and of course, a relationship is always more than a financial transaction. But I mean, I know that in a lot of more like typical manufacturing environments to finance the purchase of raw materials is actually not something that we see very often. And that that is sort of maybe the subtext or the, one of the things that's underlining or, or in some ways facilitating this more open, um, this more open communication. Yeah. I mean, it, honestly, the idea is really for us to be shouldering a lot more of the risk, the risk, Being a yeah. company, um, honestly, me having me as, as the business owner, mm-hmm. also having access to a lot more resources if the worst should happen. I have met uh, several knitters that have worked with us that were also working directly who have, um, you know, exported goods and not been paid and gone Mm. through really, really tragic experiences. Um, So really Mm. the idea is for us to take on that risk with the client and with the materials Mm. so that they can really Mm. focus on their craft. And honestly, what they do is, difficult enough as it is because they're taking, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people who haven't had, um, you know, the best access to education or, you know, different sociocultural norms 
And they're trying to help these people turn their hobby into a profession. The, the quality or the standards for quality and everything are just so different. So them having to communicate that and change people's perceptions and train them just in that is a really big feat. And, and mm. you know, they're also managing their own, you know, mini cash flows based on, um, you know, the, the wages that they're paying out or the unit pricing right. working on with, with the different knitters. And, you know, I think that is difficult enough as it is. And then I've seen people grow. I know that it can be hard, but I also think that there's a lot of reward in being able to overcome things that you thought you weren't capable of. And I think that that is especially empowering. So yeah, we definitely, um, we definitely, you know, focus on them trying to just focus on their craft. We, you know, are not always easy to work with, but we try to, you know, do the best blend possible of what the market is, is demanding and what mm. we're able to do in a way that really makes it livable for everybody. Right. And I think this is something I've heard a lot from people who are in sort of like smaller artisanal uh, or, uh, you know, sustainable fashion, sustainable folk, sustainably focused like fashion brands is that I think on the consumer side, there's often the perception that, oh, it's expensive and, and people people are must be getting really rich off of this. But it's actually, I would flip it around and I would say that in a lot of these cases with these sort of smaller smaller brands that are really focused on doing things sustainably, that it's like, it's it's not so much that, you know, that people, that, that the owners of those businesses are reaping tons and tons of rewards. It's, it's in fact the opposite. They're assuming all of the risk, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something that really flips, I think, more typical supplier brand relationships um, on, on its head. And, and I think it's important for consumers to understand that. Maybe end consumers just don't know how expensive it could be if we do everything more sustainable. I mean, very simple. Mm. If we started to calculate the environment cost, then the whole cost or the whole pricing could be very different. Today, mm. um, environment is, is usually to be seen as free, but actually how much water we use and how we purify it, how we put it back, uh, electricity, where the electricity comes from, all the land, um, all the species living on that land and it's going, that land is going to be turned into industrial land and so on. All this environmental cost and it's just a big, uh, invisible part. And even we don't talk about this yet. We just talk about, okay, thinking about how to pay the workers more sustainably and more fair. And this is already quite, uh, yes, it's, it's, a uh, it's amount of cost. So maybe for end consumers is more to, to know. Doing things in a more sustainable way is not cheap. <laughs> it's expensive <laughs> somehow. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely agree with that. I mean, in people's defense, I think I just had no idea like how um, you know how fabric becomes a garment until I actually saw it happen, and it's really hard to envision or imagine what goes on behind the curtain. Um, with manufacturing mm. in general, especially for clothing. And, you know, people just don't understand. We're used to seeing certain prices. And when you see bigger prices, we just can't understand or fathom the circumstances that would lead to such high pricing. I think it's easier, um, it's easier for us 
we've seen it, you know, in all honesty. And and I think that that is kind of like the next step of manufacturing is this whole idea of transparency and really showing people why that happens, like what actually goes behind this, what's going into it so that they can start to understand how those costs actually build up. Uh, yeah, suddenly I had this question pop up in my mind. Oh, I had the impression that uh, uh, the communication between Green Design Link and the knitters are going through the the group leaders, right? So um, how about the compliance part? I mean, if there's no direct communication between Green Design Link and the knitters, uh, correct me if that is not correct. Um, how we know clearly about the situation or the status of the knitters? That's, I mean, that's kind of the most difficult part right there. And the way that we've been able to kind of keep it in check today is, you know, obviously certain agreements that we have with, with our lead knitters, but also, um, whenever somebody's not able to meet dates or they're losing knitters, we know that something's going on. So if somebody's not offering a competitive price, if somebody's not, um, you know, if they're losing kind of the people, there's always kind of red flags that that go up because, you know, there is, I think, quite a lot of, of knitting demand at this point in Lima. So, you know, there's different ways to be able to, to contact with them. And then also, of course, having, you know, periodic conversations, um, seeing the quality of the work, uh, figuring out how they grow their company from, you know, one step to the next. These things kind of tend to come up. But as we grow, that's obviously, um, you know, there's always going to be new challenges and new areas where we need to improve, new areas that we need to tackle. And so that's definitely one of the things that we're that we're working on. I think that this like model that sort of more traditional fashion supply chains have a lot that they could could maybe take from this model. I, I mean, that's my personal point of view. And that um, it's something that Jesse and I have talked about in a number of episodes now, which is like, how do you sort of give power back to um, uh, whether it's a factory or in your case, these group leaders, how do you sort of help, you know, make those players in the supply chain accountable instead of um, trying to, let's say, police them and control them? How do you actually, I mean, here we, again, we're back to this word trust. How do you create a relationship of trust so that you're willing to sort of locate responsibility for social compliance with the people who actually have the ability to shape it and to drive it um, as opposed to sort of uh, and, and taking more of like a ground up approach rather than a top down approach. And um, I want to ask you how you go about identifying your group leaders and how you do recruitment for how, how do you find them? It's, it's very much word of mouth. So the people that, mm. you know, we work with and we have on our team are very kind of in the knitting circuit. You know, whenever we're looking, we're able to kind of um, go through different areas of Lima based on word of mouth and, and find these mm. people or even, you know, call on our knitting leaders and ask if, you know, they're able to, you know, increase their capacity by finding more individual knitters what you said is, is just, it reminds me, um, it like takes me back almost verbatim to something that Jesse said, a, maybe in 
her episode when she was describing her experience working as a merchandiser and she was describing working with a factory who told her, and this was quite unusual, but informed her as the merchandiser, the representative of the brand, that they were subcontracting. Yeah, it was quite yeah. uh, clean, organized, and there's no, obviously, there's no uh, abuse of workers' rights or abuse of uh, labor's, uh, no such stories. So I was quite surprised, yeah. Right. And that, that, and when we were talking, when we were discussing that, one of the conclusions that we came to was that really like the biggest determining factor, because you don't want to draw from that lesson, like, oh, all subcontracted facilities are great. There's no problem. I mean, that's, that's not the case. And there are real reasons why these subcontracted facilities are invisible. And therefore why often, you know, in terms of compliance, the, the, the story can be, or the picture can be quite grim, but that the biggest sort of determining factor was that this supplier was a supplier whom, whom, you know, had been, who had been carefully selected and was somebody that was, you know, you could trust what they were going to do because their reputation was also on the line, right? And if they were going to subcontract to another facility, they were, you, you, you could, in this particular context, you could trust that they were kind of vet, going to vet their partners pretty carefully because, because if, if it went wrong, it was their necks that were on the line. And that sort of really resonates, I think, with what you just described, where you're saying like there's referral through word of mouth and, um, and that, and that, people are kind of known within the community and that if if something goes people are also part of the communities in which they're working and so then there's also sort of like a a social uh what's the word like a social um reputation yeah accountability yeah right and that this is this is really interesting when you think about social responsibility in ways that you might do social responsibility at scale. Because I think if you were to approach like a, a, a larger brand or a more traditional uh, player in the fashion in the fashion scene, like in, the first thought would be like, well, well, this is way too much risk, right? We have to we have to know exactly what's going on. We have to be able to see exactly what's going on. But ultimately, that's not scalable, right? So. So, so how do you like establish partnerships in the way that you just described, which really sort of empower people further down the supply chain to, to take ownership of, of things like social compliance and social responsibility? Well, we also have um, a team of auditors and, and mm. uh, people who do follow up to production weekly, if not more, we're going mm. out to these places and to the leaders' homes or to the workshops that we're working with in order to get a gauge on quality and also progress mm. for timing. So we work mostly in Lima, which, you know, we want to be able to change because that's one of kind of the historic problems with the country where, you know, Lima is really the place where there's most work opportunity, um, mm. which forces a lot of people to come here. But for the time being, it's allowed us to really have greater control over what we do, mm. what we're doing um, in terms of quality and timing. So mm. those auditors are always there and, you know, checking on things, seeing the conditions, seeing who's there, seeing what's going on um, and have a very direct relationship with, you know, the knitting leaders, you know, the knitting leaders, I mean, it's just very, knitting is kind of a very project based kind of work. It's not mm. a full-time job where people are in a place and on a payroll 
and, you know, kind of like, oh, I have to do this or I'm going to lose my job. You know, maybe a knitter has a death in the family and they need to go, you know, travel to, you know, Mm -hmm. wherever their home or their relatives are. And then they come back and they start working again. It's kind of take it or leave it. So. And that's the way it's always kind of been in in Peru in terms of like the role of knitting in these communities. I mean, honestly, that's a great question. And I don't know if I can speak to how it's (laughs) always been. I can, I I only kind of know how it's been for us, but Mm. um, I mean, I, I would venture to say yes part of why it's so difficult to work with this group and to, and to do handmade products because the workforce is also so volatile. Uh, it, it, knitting isn't really seen like a job. It's like a supplemental income. These, I mean, and when we're talking about hand knitting, right. And oftentimes mm-hmm. like, you know, manual machines and everything else, you, the, the knitting leader will just call on people whenever there's work because sometimes there's not. And I think knitters in general are used to it being a little bit more seasonal and people can straight up say no. And if people needed something uh, really stable, maybe they're not necessarily in, in, you know, this work area, this, this niche and they're doing something a little bit different. Maybe they're in like industrial knitting and they are working at a factory. But what you've said, I think just really hits the nail on the head because one of the, like, I mean, We've t- <laughs> I keep saying this, but one of the themes that we've t- you know come up that's come up again and again is unstable demand, and how do you deal and how do you cope with an industry where in- unstable demand is inherent to the business of fashion, right? I mean, in many le- like many senses of the word, from in the sense that you know you might design something one season and it's a hit, and the next you might not, or you know people buy more in certain months than they buy in other months, and you know there are there are there are ebbs and flows to production. And I think a lot of times within sustainability spaces, we try and cope with that by saying, well, everyone needs to be on permanent contracts and everybody needs to have uh, job security. And I totally agree. Those are things that are really, really, really important, but, but they're really also hard to achieve in a context where there's unstable demand. And I think what what the scenario that you just described really opens up the imagination to conceive of like, how could you cope with unstable demand and sort of production that's up and down in a way that is um, treats people with, with dignity and with respect. And maybe that isn't quite what we, you know, necessarily where our head first jumps to when we hear those, when we hear those ideas, like, you know, permanent contract or, you know, whatever, but maybe there is a way for these two things to to coexist and to coexist in a way that is respectful and that you know allows workers dignity as well. I think you know knitting here in Peru has always kind of been seasonal and ebbs and flows. So that's something mm. that we've all just taken as a reality and that mm. no you know we at least not like speaking for you know, us as a company, and then also our knitters, we've never really tried to mess with that. So we all understand that that's the nature of knitting. And we haven't tried to take it to a different place. And we've kind of built on that. And what we've tried to do um, as a company is bring more work to the table, so that we are they are able to have a lot more stability. This, this is not to say that they are working all the time. 
There mm. are, um, I mean, going back to ebbs and flows, it, it's like, mm. it, it, and, and like I worked as a translator for a while. So it reminds me a lot of like my work is in translating. So sometimes I'd, you know, have work and it would, you know, I'd have this project that I have to get in by a certain date and I would be working maybe like around the clock or, you know, a lot, but then the next few days I had off. And I think that the structure that we have here is probably similar where, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, you know, run, 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 go, go, go. And, and, you know, we got to get the order out and everything and, and, and it's a lot more work, but then, you know, you have a little bit of a break and you're like, ah, well, I'll go, you know, I'll go on vacation. I'm going to go, you know, visit family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what we try to do, and I think that the, and this is, uh, really one of the most difficult things I think we have as a company is trying to map out everybody's capacity and keep them as busy as possible without things overlapping, without overburdening, mm. um, respecting, trying to respect as much as possible the work that they want um, mm-hmm. and seeing where any sort of overflow will go. And what makes this, you know, additionally more complicated is that each group is essentially in charge of a certain style. And we can't mm. always predict what styles are going to have what volume or what date mm. or what order, you know what I mean? So then trying mm-hmm. to orchestrate all of that actually becomes extremely difficult. But that's something that um, certainly beats the alternative. There's there's a lot of really big corporations out there that just have a no homework or policy mm-hmm. because they can't, you know, they can't control the conditions. I mean, how can you tell somebody right. how to have their home? You know, if that's right. the place that, where they work. So, it, and it's just, it's such an important income for such a large population of the earth um, that to just write it off because it's difficult or because there's factors you can't control. I personally feel like that's not the right way to go. And that that's mm. taking compliance to a level that is excluding so many people who need this work. Very small question. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm personally interested, I have a guess, but I don't know if you guys feel relevant or not. Uh, so just thinking, uh, is that the case that uh, usually the group leaders come from the same area or same village or same community, community with the leaders' neaters? Is that the case? Yeah. Um, often. So uh, yes, there's definitely, um, there's definitely a geographical factor. However, mm. we've definitely found cases where we have groups on the opposite ends of Lima who are losing knitters to each other. This doesn't happen so much anymore. This was kind of, you know, a few years back, but we'd be like, wait a second. Like we, you know, we'd have a certain style that we divided between two groups based on capacity. And we found mm-hmm. that, you know, some knitters were going to another group. And that's one of those factors where it was like, okay, wait a second. What are you guys paying your knitters? You know? We need to yeah, kind of like interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so these are kind of the things that started to happen where we're like, okay, wait a second. We need to, you know, you guys need to work on. So actually the knitters also, you know, talk to each other so that they can make sure that they're not kind of overlapping and just getting knitters to actually talk to each other and look at each other more as like teammates and colleagues rather than competition was a feat in and of itself. But, um, but now, you know, if somebody's overloaded and needs something, they'll usually call on somebody else and then they help each other in that way. Mm. Um, kind of like the Aini concept, um, in Quechua where, you know, I think it's, uh, today for you, tomorrow for me, 
where, you know, mm. I'll help you in this chance. And then when I need, when I need your help, um, you chip in and we've kind of been able to foment mm. that. So, I mean, to answer your question, generally they're close together, but there's also times that they're not. And we also have leaders who are taking on groups in um, other areas outside of Lima, like in the Andes and, and uh, other communities in order to, mm. you know, get, get more capacity. Okay. I, I, I'm interested in this question because I have a guess that, uh, um, um, how to say that, uh, when there is a blank space that no system has been built up, especially the, there's no modern factory based uh, system built up, then what uh, makes people can trust each other and what makes them can work together is sometimes a kind of bond either from, I call it as natural bond, for instance, from the same families or same villages or same, same big families, like relatives, or sometimes it's sort of a geographic bond. Uh, yeah, from same villages or same areas or share some, uh, same cultural background, same sort of community. folks. Yeah. yeah. Community. So yeah, I think, um, I think that's a key factor for, uh, a management like that to manage artisans over a larger scale, there must be such bound to make the Definitely. communication much more, yeah, much more efficient and to grow more trust, more corporations. Yeah. It's, it's interesting so, to hear that. Yeah. All those factors um, are definitely a play. And then friendship also plays a really big role. So a lot of mm. times when, um, you know, if a client comes and we take them, they, you know, they want to see the knitters, they want to see what's going on. We go and take them and, you know, you, you can see, you hear in the stories, the knitting leader um, and the women, they don't do it just for work. There's also, you know, this huge, um, you know, kinship and kind of like mm. moral support that often goes on in the group um, where, you know, they get together not just to knit and not just to have income, but also to be able to talk to each other about what's going on in life, um, about their kids. And, you know, what's so important about knitting is it works around their schedule. So, you know, their kids come first. Um, the knitting day is not like any other working schedule where, you know, they're working nine to five. They, they are mm. first and foremost, you know, housekeepers and, and moms. Um, they're running their household. And then knitting comes second. So they, they usually take care of the kids um, in the morning and then in the afternoons they kind of like get together, but it's, it's this um, space where, you know, they can, they can be in touch on a really human level. And, you know, the knitters also talk a lot about how therapeutic knitting is and, and, you know, that's all over Google. I mean, it's, it's no, it's no secret that knitting is, is really therapeutic, but it's something that, we see pop up time and again in the stories about um, why the knitters knit. Um, often it's something that they learned when they were young or they learned when they're older. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter, but oftentimes it has to do with uh, getting through difficult periods of time in their life. You know, speaking to what you're saying about compliance and the questions that you have, um, I think they're really important questions. And I, like, I personally don't know the answer about the best way to go about compliance, but I hope that like in six months to a year, I do. And that's, kind of, <laughs> I think the next, the next step for us in the next phase is really to see um, at least how we approach compliance. And if we can gather some better ideas on what that means in the homeworker setting. 
So to date, we've already gained fair trade certification through Prom Peru of the Peruvian government. And we've also formed a relationship with the organization Nest, which is doing an amazing job of spearheading homeworking standards for companies like ours. But it can still be hard to understand exactly where we fit. And at times it can feel like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. So this is something that will likely always be a work in progress for us. And we'll have to continually find ways to improve. But then again, that's kind of how everyone should be operating. Working in an informal sector and trying to build out parameters that preserve the flexibility homeworkers need isn't easy, but we're definitely up for the challenge and aim to make continual improvements to how we approach this. So I think this discussion about social compliance is really interesting and it 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 begs a lot of questions about what should we what should we take away because I think there's a lot of different messages that maybe feel conflicting at times. Jesse, what what do you think? Oh, it just uh, reminded me um uh, a term that's uh uh, Chinese government love to use it, but not not anymore today. But I think that term is perfect to describe what I think right now, which is the soft power and hard power. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just uh, you know all this kind of natural bond between people, like from people are from same village, geographically bound bonded or family bonded, like cousins, relatives, and so on. Rose actually has a lot of power. Comparing to um, standard procedure, compared to the rules of compliance, audits, also. yeah, audits, especially audits, yeah. So when people grouped together, they naturally will have sort of bonds, and those bonds works better actually when when there is compliance conflicts. So it just make me think: what in a place, if the modern production or so called modern uh, way of living didn't destroy those kind of fabric uh, of society yet, then usually communities can work better. Um, well, maybe I can't say work better, but communities definitely play a very important role of compliance. And hard power here, I I want to mention, is usually what we said just now, audits, rules, regulations, uh, all these terms. It can work. It's definitely necessary, very necessary. But somehow there are some gray zones, something cannot be straightforward. Uh, for instance, a manager didn't speak very well, didn't speak nicely to the workers. And I don't know if you can use an audit or use a rules to go against that to, to force him to change. But however, if there is a soft power, if there is a bond, or if there is a community, the pressure from the community could make the manager change much faster than yeah, and I think it's interesting because maybe one of the reasons that we have such a formal and prescriptive system for social compliance, kind of as we know it today, which is really b- focused and rooted in accreditation systems or uh, auditing systems, um, is because more often than not, garment factories are kind of like like islands, you know, totally isolated from their t- from their typical social and community relationships. I mean, it reminds me in um, episode six, we talked to Kim about, and Kim is Cambodian and her relationship with the Chinese management and the struggles that the Chinese management had in terms of building positive relationships with the Cambodian staff. And often factory management, like, uh, 
not always, but often factory management is not part of the community in which they're working. And uh, workers at the same time also leave their communities behind and move to the city to go and work in the garment factory. So community level accountability is kind of out the window on both sides. And then we look at like artisanal production, like what Green Design Link has described, which is working with, you know, over a thousand knitters who are already who are already knitting, you know, they're, they're a community that already exists. And, and we, um, and then kind of, we hear, like, for me, I actually was surprised to hear that um, Green Design Link was doing audits. But I guess it makes sense, because we're trying to impose a similar approach, which is really quite prescriptive and focused on finding let's call it like a, a way of controlling a wild west instead of leveraging the systems of accountability that are already in place. Like if you came in with, with working hours, like you have to work from eight to five or with maximum two hours of overtime, like, and these totally inflexible schedules, you'd actually, you'd, you'd, you'd end up working against and maybe even destroying the community life that created it in the first place. How do we create space for, imagining other models that focus less on universal one-size-fits-all approaches and more on really leveraging the sort of community bonds and community accountability that are already in place. And that's hard because 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 one-size-fits-all are easier to manage and easier to sort of, especially from a legal perspective, show that you've done your due diligence and that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's. But but are they really always the best thing for for guaranteeing uh, workers' rights? And I think it it really depends on context. So I don't have any answers for Green Design Link either, but I hope that uh, we could see compliance in a more how to say in more re- re- radically reimagined compliance. Yeah, <laughs> and that consumers and that consumers are ready for it and willing to take it on too, because that's the other challenge, right? Consumers like. There's, I think there's so much greenwashing and there's so much like, oh, I'm a sustainable brand, but are you really? And consumers are so skeptical and understandably and justifiably so, right? But that leaves players like Green Design Link in a tough spot because on the one hand, consumers are getting more and more educated. They're asking to see accreditation. They're asking to see information about policies. They're asking and they have a, they've, consumers have been given a framework for what social compliance looks like from from brands and kind of maybe they're expect to see in other contexts too. And so in that case, maybe end consumers could understand compliance is is a live thing needs to fit the the context, not a stiff standard or something, not just a paper or certification. Yeah, but I think a lot of times too, like maybe the like the reason for that too is that compliance is seen is within legal, and it's seen as uh, like in big bigger brands, often compliance departments, social compliance departments are housed within legal, and they're seen as a way to sort of do due diligence, so that like if something should happen in the supply chain, if there's a if there's a sweatshop expose or an expose of human rights abuses or whatever it might be, that the brand can then say, well. You know, we've been, we've been, I mean, you saw it with Rana Plaza, right? We've been doing our compliance audits. We've been, we've been, uh, we've been doing, we've been following our procedures. We've been checking the facilities that we work with. And um, therefore, like, we're not responsible and the problem lies somewhere else. So it's almost even, I think, used as a tool to, 
shedding facilitate, yeah. Faci yeah, facilitate shedding responsibilities to the other sides. Yeah. 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 And then, and then like you come in with a, in an example, like green design link, which from the, from the get go has been set up and structured in a completely different way. So it's a bit of a catch 22. On that note, we'll have to come back to you in six months to a year and have this conversation again and see where we're at. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, check out our website, manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do. So please don't be shy. Leave comments on Instagram or connect with us privately through our website. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show, and we'd love your help with that. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Bye.